again, everybody, and welcome to today's Scope of Practice podcast, the product of the Connecticut Certification Board. We continue on with our fourth season of addressing anything and everything of interest to professionals in the substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery industry. Marijuana is the most commonly used federally illegal drug in the United States, with an estimated 55 million people using it in 2022. It is the most popular drug in the United States and arguably the most popular drug in the world. According to the latest research by the National Center for Drug Abuse Statistics, 45% of all Americans have tried marijuana at least once, a quarter of all 12th graders have used it in the past year, and approximately 30% of all who use it have the marijuana use disorder. Generally, the public has supported legalization, and despite the federal prohibition, 41 states and the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana for recreational use. Many in the prevention field fought very hard against marijuana legalization, so this trend of legalization can seem like a significant threat to their work, but with their threat is also an opportunity to reassess efforts and continually improve strategies and techniques. There's an old saying that says, we don't change because we hear the thunder, but because we feel the lightning. Well, clearly the lightning has struck and will continue to strike. Our guest today is Shannon Spurlock of JSI. She has worked for JSI for more than 17 years, has managed the development of e-learning modules on marijuana and the adolescent brain, electronic nicotine devices, and an overview of the Rhode Island Behavioral Health System to support onboarding of new staff. She directs the Rhode Island Prevention Resource Center, providing training and technical assistance to a range of state and community-based prevention programs. She led the development of the Rhode Island Prevention and Peer Recovery Special Certification Exam Guides to support workforce development in Rhode Island and nationally. She directed the Rhode Island Behavioral Health Workforce Development Project, focusing on building the capacity of behavioral health providers and retention and recruitment strategies. Excuse me. She co-directs the pilot evaluation for peer recovery supports in the emergency department for the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Shannon is a SAMHSA certified trainer for the Substance Abuse Prevention Skills Training and a Certified Prevention Specialist, and also has an MA and a CPS. Welcome to the program, Shannon. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today, Jeff. I'm glad to get the chance to talk to you. I know we've talked about this for a while, and it's kind of nice to make it come to fruition. Um, I want to start with a statement that we often hear we know is true, but it's not often clarified. Legalization will increase access to marijuana for those under 21. In what ways is that access increased uh, for prevention's target population? Well, I think similar to what we know around nicotine and alcohol um, is that when things become legal, it becomes easier to access. There's more marijuana. There's more types of marijuana. um, There's edibles. There's there's, you know, traditional marijuana, there's tinctures, there's all kinds of different ways that marijuana is being made available um, through adult use marijuana sales. Um, there's definitely much more marketing of, of marijuana. The attitudes around cannabis and marijuana use have changed. So um, people are feel like it's less harmful, so they're more likely to experiment. There's just more marijuana available. Um, People are buying it like they buy a six-pack. They're buying gummies. They're having it in their homes. They're not necessarily locking it up. We don't necessarily um, have a lot of um, limitations around how it's being um, marketed 
Um, so there, if you if you drive through, you know, Rhode Island through Connecticut all the way through Massachusetts, all you see is billboards around where you can buy pot. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's new. That's not something that was the norm, and we don't see that as much for other substances. And we definitely have limited that um, ability to um, advertise in that way for nicotine. One of the things I noticed is uh, driving on the highway headed towards Massachusetts, before we had dispensaries here in Connecticut, you would notice billboards near the border, whether it be a 91 or 84, with the, the first dispensaries when you cross the border, where they're access, you know, where they were yep. placed. And, and, and that was uh, a shock. And I know there'd been a push to let's limit that or have some restrictions on that. Um, and here in the town that I live in, in Bristol, Connecticut, within a month of a uh, dispensary opening for retail sales, they had three or four individuals underage that were able to purchase. So, yeah. it, it, you know, obviously it's clear. I just wanted to make sure for our listeners that they understand sure. you know, how the access has increased. Um, I'd like to ask about the public health issues related to marijuana. Uh, These were major points in the fight against legislation and are absolutely still relevant in this age of legalization. Mm -hmm. Can you identify some of those issues? Well, I think that we know, particularly for the developing brain, that underage use is really an important area for us to focus because the adolescent brain is not fully developed at 18. We know that it it's not until the early 20s, in some cases up to 25, where the brain is fully developed. Um, and so in terms of a prevention and public health perspective, we want to delay experimentation and use. Um, and it's really to allow the brain to develop fully. I think also from a public health perspective is that we as a country have not necessarily done a great job um, necessarily limiting underage use for other substances like alcohol and uh, and nicotine, right? We have all of these programs to limit um, sales to minors for alcohol, and we need to replicate very similar processes for for marijuana and the same thing that we've done for nicotine. We need to limit access. And we did not put those safeguards in place from a public health perspective before we went legal. And I think that is definitely a challenge because that means that not only is there access, but we're also going back in time and having to repeat what we've are the successes we've already had um, around other substance and now we have to do it again and we knew those lessons learned before we started um I think there's also additional public health issues that we haven't taken a look at like um, impaired driving or drug driving um we do not have open container laws in all of the states that are legal so you can smoke in the street you can smoke in your car you can pretty much smoke anywhere out now if you walk down the street with a 40 people have an attitude. If you get caught with an open container in your car with alcohol, there is an issue. We do not have those particular um, regulations in all the states who have legalized adult use, and that that's a challenge. Um, we also do not have the systems in place and s- similar to what we have for a, um, getting pulled over for alcohol and getting a breathalyzer, and so you know how much is in your system. We don't necessarily know how much marijuana or THC needs to be in a system for a person to be considered impaired. 
And we know that marijuana does impair driving. It affects um, reaction. It it slows brain functioning, um, distance estimation. There's, you know, procedural memory, all of those kinds of things. We know that it affects that part of the brain. So we, even though you'll talk to people who say, when I drive high, I drive better. That's clearly subjective, right? Mm-hmm. And they're making their right. decisions, you know. That's and but the research is able to show that with intoxication of marijuana, that the cognitive and motor skills are affected, and so that's extremely dangerous from a public health perspective. I apologize um, for any background noise. Um, in addition to that, we haven't really looked at the at what we are considering a serving size of marijuana. So like if you go in for alcohol, they'll say, this is a serving size of wine. This is how much alcohol is in wine. This is how much alcohol is in spirits and beer or whatever. We do not necessarily have that for um, for marijuana. Like, so this is how much THC is in one marijuana cigarette. This is what's in one edible and it's not consistent across sites or what's in one brownie or what what's in one tincture. Um, so we don't have dosage or serving sizes that have been connected to impairment and appropriate use. So that's, I think the biggest challenge we have is that there's a lot of information from a public health perspective that we don't know. Um, and that we do know for other substances um, that are legalized. I, I think from my perspective as well, uh, when you talk about impaired driving, it's rare that I'll be driving down the, the local street uh, during a day without passing a car or a car passing, even if their windows are closed, that I can strongly smell the smoke of marijuana. And I don't know if that's the amount or if it's the quality. Certainly the quality is a lot different than when I was in high school. Um, so I'm told anyways. Um, and, and so it, it's just shocking to notice that. Um, are we looking and we look at the states where there's legalization and, and decriminalization, and things like that. Um, are we seeing this kind of pushed forward um by special interest groups and all without like you're saying without regard to everything that encompasses uh what would make legalization as safe as possible uh, in, in a public health perspective um it's pushed it through instead of looking at those i would say that from my experience i think it depends on different states and i'm not familiar with everybody's legislation so let me just own my limitation but I know that in the case of the states that I've worked with, that particularly, I'll use your Rhode Island as an example. We provided a list of all of these things as preventionists to the governor before it was legalized and said, you know, these are the things that we think you should look at, L- looking at all these similar issues that we're talking about. And it was not addressed before legalization went forward. And there was never a response. So they went forward legalizations without those safeguards in place. And, and as we we look and we talk about the men, the, the message of prevention um, and the target population of those adolescents, um, mm-hmm. and I'll use Kevin Sabet, who's been mm-hmm. a yeah. very, very vocal uh, opponent of legalization. I don't care about the 30-year-old person who sits in their house and watches a ball game and smokes a joint. Not my concern whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, they're they're a grown adult can do what they want and they're not being unsafe to others for the most part yeah um, but it really is about the the 
development of brains in these adolescents, and that's the future of, of future leaders uh, of our country. So that does have give me some concern. Um, and it's also the people the that you are going to be hiring in the future. So it's not just the leaders, but this is your the next market of people that you're going to be hiring. Um, and I think we forget that that it's not you know that that we are building the next generation that are are coming out with their brains impaired and expecting the same quality and of of employee. It's amazing that the one thing that they did figure out with being that it's banned federally is how to account for the cash that individuals are making at these businesses and and to protect their money. They figured that out quickly um, Mm -hmm. so that the feds don't come swooping in and take it. Yeah. Um, But I want to talk about the importance of truth when it comes to the prevention message. Um, Noted Columbia professor Carl Hart who, although he is a proponent of legalization of all drugs across the board, has made some important points about false messaging. Um, He said that when we tell kids and and adolescents that if they use drugs, they're going to die or go to prison, uh, it's completely ignored because they see individuals in their families and in their communities actively using who are neither deceased or in jail. Um, So how do we tailor the truth? Uh, uh, to those targeted by the prevention message? I think that our message has to evolve with with the information that we have. It's like the whole just say no and this is your brain on drugs kind of thing. We know those messages don't work. So we don't use them anymore in the prevention field. And that most well-trained and what I would say qualified preventionists usually don't take that those scare tactic approaches. We really tend to say, you know, this is that we do know that it has an impact on your brain. We know that it does have an impact on develop on your developing brain. We do know that it has an impact on your ability to drive. These are the things we know. We do mm-hmm. know that there's a large proponent of people who have experienced substance use disorder in their future who have started off with marijuana and then gone on to other substances. That doesn't mean that always happens. That's like saying everybody who takes a sip of alcohol is going to become an alcoholic. We don't know that. What we know is that if you're predisposed to addiction that that and you have family history and that there are a lot of contributing factors to that, that you might be high, at higher risks. So you need to make better decision making. Um, you know, as a mom of teenagers, I never say to my kids, if you get high, you're going to die. What I say is that as a mom and as a preventionist, what I know is that if you're using substances, it affects your brain. And I would like your brain to be as fully developed as possible. The same way as I want your body fully developed and functioning before you drive a car. I definitely want you to have your brain to have as much resiliency as possible so that you can have the choices in your future. Not because I think the end, it's like the end is nigh if you smoke marijuana or if you ate an edible. Um, I do think that there are some concerns that parents need to have if they're using. So if you're locking up your liquor cabinet and you're you're locking up your medicine, like we're asking you to do, you know, to prevent opioid access that we need to, you need to lock up your marijuana and your edibles. Um, You know, we're seeing increase of toddlers eating 
edibles and ending up in the poison control. I mean, there are these unintended outcomes that are deadly, that can be deadly, you know, but those aren't the norm. And I don't think that those are the messages that have worked for alcohol. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've worked for nicotine. The scare tactics haven't been working. We're, We're saying that we really want you to be whole, well people. And that the best way to do that is to ideally, if you're going to delay experimentation until your brain is developed uh, and or choose not to use. And and I think the importance of those messages is that they uh, give the the adolescents and the the target population the opportunity to think about what's being said instead (laughs) of just saying what you're telling me isn't true on its face. Um, I have a colleague in Pennsylvania who's been talking about the issues with smoking and vaping forever. And one of the things when she goes to high schools is she lets the students know uh, that, hey, you know, uh, I'm not going to tell you smoking will kill you. It can. But I'll tell you that it has significant effects on sexual performance and ability to function, especially mm-hmm. in adolescence. And yeah. she said that gets her a line after class. Hey, I want to yeah. quit smoking. Hey, yeah, exactly. Because it, I think the possibility of something happening to a part of their life that's incredibly overvalued as an adolescent yeah. um, will drive action, that there's concern that they're not laughing off, just say no, mm-hmm. uh, and things like along that. So I think it's important to give these adolescents credit for having some sense and letting them use their brains instead of just pre- predicting. Um, I, I know that a lot of individuals in the prevention realm put a lot of effort uh, into challenging the legislation, and some are extremely disappointed of its passing in several states. Uh, for the few, and I do mean few, but I actually know a couple who view that as some sort of public health Armageddon, um, does it change how they'll have to work? Well, I think it does change how we, you know, we as preventionists talk about marijuana. I mean, it has to, because now it's a legal substance, but I don't think that it, I mean, we have been dealing with very similar issues with underage drinking and, and nicotine access. Um, so this is not a new area for us. Um, you know, I think that, you know, there was a time when we did not have to think about opioid overdose as a public health crisis. And we do. And we had to respond to it. That's just how it is. We have to think about things differently. And now as preventionists, we're going to have to think about things differently in terms of how we talk about marijuana. My hope is that key decision makers and people who are making decisions around business because they're making money off of it will also continue to think about the public health impact and implement the safeguards um, that need, you know, around advertising, around where you use social host laws around marijuana so that if you're giving kids under 21 marijuana in your house, you're accountable, same as if you were um, giving serving them alcohol, all of those kinds of things. My hope is that the policies will catch up more quickly for marijuana so that we're not dealing with the public health crisis outcomes Mm -hmm. that we had to deal with, with alcohol and with nicotine. And, um, you know, so that we have, I think we have more lessons learned and know how to respond better now. So I feel like we're more equipped as long as we have, 
you know, the relationships. My assumption is most of the people who are selling marijuana are not out there wanting to break the law and sell the kids. But that's not their major, you know, that's not their goal. Like most liquor stores are not really going out to sell to minors. That's not what they want to do. And in the communities where we've built positive relationships with people and outlets who sell, they're less likely to sell to minors because we treat them as a business who wants to make socially responsible public health decisions for their community. They're part of the community. Um, And that I think, you know, as long as we have those systems in place and continue to have those conversations and build those relationships, the people who see this as kind of this real incredible loss we'll see it as more of an opportunity to build relationships and do similar to what we did with, with other substances. I do think it's disappointing because we knew better and just key decision makers didn't do better. So we knew that we should have had these public health infrastructures in place and prevention infrastructures in place before we legalized and states didn't necessarily do that. I think that's where the frustration is, is that because we know better now, we should have done better with our decision makers should have been, have, should have done better when they were developing these policies. I, um, I, I'd be know. willing to guess all they saw were the tax revenues. That, well, it's a uh, lot of money. It's a lot of money. There. Um, but it doesn't even sound like we're talking about a change. We're talking about an adjustment, an adaptation to what the reality of the world is. Um, our field is not especially good at that in the big picture. When we look at legislation now that they're talking about making increasing access to methadone, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the groups like ATOD and those that represent the OTPs are fighting it because it's a challenge to their business model, not because it's the right thing to do. And I think we see a lot of uh, how does it affect me when we talk about change and that there's create some resistance to adapt. Uh, but when there are other, uh, I know of an OTP in Connecticut is saying, okay, how can we continue to be viable if this goes through? You know, what can we do? Uh, what's our business model going to look like? And I think that's what it is. And and certainly liquor stores and the, the dispensaries don't want to sell to minors, most of them, because it's bad business. When you're shut down, you can't make any money. Uh, yep. And you'll so be fine you if see you this look like a pariah in your business. If you start to look like a pariah in your community, people aren't going to shop there. Yeah. If you can be a good business neighbor, people will forget, uh, you know, they'll just, oh, that's just another part of the community. Nobody would think twice about it. Um, is it similar from a prevention standpoint? You touched on this a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the prevention messaging around alcohol and nicotine and things like that. I, I think it's similar. Um, I think it's a little bit different because we don't have as much information around dosage and percentage of THC and all of that kind of stuff. And there's not enough regulations in place where we can say, this is what a serving size looks like. So you can make educated decisions around use. Um And I think, you know, so I think that is where we're at a little bit of a disadvantage right now. I think that will change, but I just don't think we're there yet. Um, I think also there's a lot of um, technology associated with growing and how we utilize the THC and the marijuana differently. So there's, you know, there's... Uh, things that can be added and growing different things and 
and um, manipulation of the plants and things like that. Um, I can't remember the word I'm looking for when they make the changes to the plants, but um, that is new. And so I think that we need to look at that and make sure that we're not, that we're making sound decisions around what we're making available in communities. And, and I think things like, you know, our departments of health have to be able to go in and making sure if they're baking brownies on site, that the same as you would regulate a place that's selling cookies, they would be held accountable to make sure that they're, you know, that they're sanitized and it's appropriate and that we have those systems in place to make sure places are safe. Um, my guess is that people are going out of their way to make sure that they're, they're doing things because they want to do good business. But I think we need to ensure that there are policies in place to, to make sure that happens. Um, I think I went, off on, I went off your question. I apologize. Oh, it's okay. With <laughs> this change in, in policy and the trend in legalization being, you know, potentially significantly problematic, doesn't it also offer opportunities for more research into adverse effects and things we know we didn't have a lot of significant research around marijuana because it wasn't able to be used and and things. Uh, does this open up an opportunity to learn more uh, to protect the public about the adverse health effects? And I think it potentially does. And I know that there are studies that are already happening and people are looking at it. Um, I mean, people have been looking at it from a medicinal perspective for years. And I think this can open up an opportunity to do more research. Um and for us to know better, to do better. Um, I think the biggest challenge is that because we have not solved the issue of underage drinking yet, right? And we have not, as a country, done a good job at underage nicotine and underage alcohol sales. We have not really had a, a strong history of doing that well then we're adding another substance to it. So we're just adding another layer. And I think that's where the frustration is. It's like, let's get one thing. Let's let's show that we as a country can limit underage drinking and do it really well. And if we can do that, then let's look at including other substances. So I think that's one, a different lens. I also think you keep talking, you had mentioned a couple of times around change. I think we, as people, have trouble making change, right? Especially mm -hmm. if we're not involved in the discussion around change. And I think for preventionists, I feel like that key decision makers did not have public health folks and preventionists as part of the discussion. And that was, in my opinion, mm -hmm. a lack of insight that if they had done that, then they could have had not only better policies and rolled out better systems, that they also would have had better buy-in from public health and preventionists when this rolled out. And that by not doing that, they're having this pushback and um, and also having to respond and pass more policies and more regulations and more of these things, you know, almost like a, a Band-Aid approach versus doing it as we're rolling out from a business plan. And I think yeah. that, you know, as, as something pops up, yeah. they're having to deal with that instead of looking at saying, hey, the, here's some of the possibilities, kind of like an informed cons uh, consent for the legislature. Exactly. Here are all these possibilities around. Um, and they the were given that percent tax rate that, you know, yeah. that, that uh, overtook all. Um, it, it, 
just uh, uh, kind of quickly, I want to address a myth that goes along with that that states have used uh, about legalization and saying, well, we're we're going to eliminate or significantly reduce the black market if we do this. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um well, that's what the research is saying in the states who have had legalization the longest, like Colorado's, California's, um, Washington State. The research that's coming out is that they have a gray market, which means that there's still people that are underselling or reselling or upselling, you know, um, so they're buying it legally and then selling at a higher rate to people underage. Um, and then people who have had illegal sales consistently can undersell what's being taxed. Um, and in addition to that, they're likely to have marijuana with other substances in it. So it has it's a different type of, of market, but it hasn't gone away completely. They're referring to it, um, when I've heard it presented on a national level, they refer to it as the versus the black market, the gray market, right? Um, and so I think it's it's still to be determined. I don't think it's ever stopped doing that. It uh you know, reminds me of, of a, a situation where, like, if I'm somebody that wants to buy marijuana, I want to buy a bag of weed, um, and I've always bought it from the person down the street that I know or my coworker or whatever, I'm not going to suddenly change and trust the government. I worry about my information. I worry about all this stuff going in. Um, I, I, I think I'm still most likely to go to the person down the street because First of all, I know what I'm getting. I believe I know what I'm getting. And there's mm -hmm. no tax. And it's just a simpler process for me. Uh, and I'm not getting ID. I'm not, my name isn't being written. They're not uh, keeping track of what I buy. And so nobody knows I'm buying. Um, when you go into a place where they sell, they are checking ID. They're looking for forms of ID. If you do not have a form of ID, mm -hmm. um, you, you can't buy. You have to have legal ID, um, so you don't have a choice. Um, so newcomer communities or anybody who doesn't have legal um, ID, um, that's an issue. But also that means that, you know, like you have to show ID to walk in the door. Yeah. And they keep that and they track that. Um, so people know you're buying. <laughs> You know, yeah, if you're, and if you're so, on a public street and to see if there's a line out, people are going it, it's just a completely different kind of perspective and, and way of doing things. Um, you had mentioned something earlier. One of the incredible things that is done in the prevention space is coalition building. Uh, yes. Do you see it possible, if not necessary, to involve these legal dispensaries in those coalitions? You had mentioned relationships earlier. Um, I think it depends on the coalition. I think they it would be good for them to be part of the conversation. I don't necessarily know if they need to be members of coalitions, um, but at least be guests at coalition to be able to talk about it and be able to know that the coalitions are a resource for them. Um, I think that I'm very careful about my coalition membership because I also don't want anybody to treat anybody on my coalition with disrespect or as the enemy per se, right? Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that it would be a very healthy coalition where somebody would be able to be able to participate as a business person. Um, and I don't know if we as a field are evolved enough, yes, with these changes to be able to do that. Maybe in, in strong communities. Um, but I do think 
you know, I know that there are some preventionists who have had conversation with people who sell and talk to them and and have gone in and say, hi, I, I direct this coalition. I'm here to talk to you. Um, you're a business in my community. I just want to talk to you about some of our concerns. I want to hear about your business model. Let's walk through it and learn how they card and how they're avoiding underage sales and building those relationships and, and having those conversations. And I think we've done that historically really well with with liquor stores mm-hmm. and, or as they say in, in Massachusetts, package stores, um, um, they, you know, going in and saying, I'm not going to sell. They have stickers, the sticker shock. I don't sell the underage. I card all of those kinds of things. And then recognizing those businesses for not doing that. And that's worked really well because the business wants to be known as a business that doesn't sell to minors and being recognized for that. But I don't necessarily know if they're in, so they're involved in the coalition's work, but not necessarily on a coalition. So I think it, it, you know, it may evolve differently, but I mean, that's what I've seen successfully so far. Um, and they call it sticker shock. So they kind of yeah. you know, show, but I, I think that, that we can have very similar initiatives with marijuana dispensaries in our States and places that sell. I think it's particularly important to be able to do it. Um, there's one of the things I've noticed is how many dispense, you know, sales, point of sales have popped up so quickly. So they were ready to go. And my biggest concern is that what happens when it becomes more like the tobacco industry comes in and decides to sell marijuana, right? I've been having conversations with people that even when they were talking about it, saying the significant costs of getting into the business um, what people are paying the states for grow licenses and the lotteries, and I'm sure there's some grift and some stuff going on in states uh, around that. Um, but ultimately, the only one who could afford to be in it are going to be the big tobacco companies who have taken a beating from from some legislation and and uh, court findings that they're going to put their resources somewhere else to make money. And, and it would not surprise me in the least. I apologize. People that listen to the podcast know my dog because she chooses to do this now and again. Um, you know, although we know a majority of Americans might favor legalization, uh, uh, the simple reality, we've touched on this, is that the policy was driven by money, not by public demand. Um, have advocates from your experience uh, worked for targeting spending of those tax funds for public health needs? Um, I mean, um, do you have any examples? Well, yes, I know that many states have um, have asked for that. And that's kind of what they've asked is that a portion of the money go toward public health or prevention initiatives and, and so that it supports it. And some states are doing that. I can't tell you. I don't know enough about the different states to tell you which states are doing what. I just don't want to provide misinformation. But I do know some states have put a portion aside. I know that some states are putting portions aside. I believe it's in Washington state where they put some money aside to do research. Um, and that's connected to it. I know that some states have put money aside to do um, education around underage sales. Um, and that, you know, different states have different models. I think that's the biggest challenge we have is that depending on what state you have different policies. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, legalization in every state looks the same. You know, one of the cool things I think that Alaska did is that they're requiring their marijuana be grown in state. So that big tobacco can't really come in unless they're supporting their agricultural 
um, communities as well. Um, and I so think I that's think happening here in Connecticut that the uh, select growers are, are can sell to the dispensaries and that's it. But I'm not positive. I haven't seen yeah. all the legislation. But it's it's different. You know, like I said, it's different in every state. But I do, I do think some states are definitely putting aside money toward that. And there's been an ask. Um, I know that we have found that in states who have done that. So, for an example, the tobacco taxes that we had in Massachusetts that's been whittled away, and it doesn't go as much toward tobacco control as it used to. We saw that nationally. When, you know, the settlement funds came down, people used it to pave roads versus what it was supposed to be used for. So I do think that even if it's in written in the legislation, it has to be monitored very carefully because people will, you know, whittle it down and use it for different things. Um, so I think we have to be very thoughtful and it has to be written in a very clear directed way where it's earmarked. And some states don't allow earmarking at all. Mm -hmm. um, so. And as we look at the big picture, I just see all of these issues coming in from all around that it's not as simple as making it legal and available to adults. It is much, much more involved. Um, as we close, let me ask a really oversimplified question. In the age of changing marijuana laws, is this a case of playing the best we can with the hand that we've been dealt? Um, I would say, yes, I think that's mm -hmm. true for most public health issues, right? Um you know, as policies change and, and situations change, um, I use the opioid epidemic as the example as well. Nobody predicted that we would ever have this level of an opioid epidemic in our country that we ended up having that not only was a public health crisis, but it was, it was a horrific loss of life that we never anticipated mm -hmm. and that we had to, you know, we had to be respond, we had to respond to, and then we can go out and point fingers all day long. And that's important to know how to solve the issue. But the issue is that we have to deal with what we have now. Right. And, um, and then we have to be able to respond and support our communities and really focus our energies where it matters. Like you were saying, the 30 year old person who's smoking a fatty watching a game, like they would have a beer. That is not the person that we necessarily want to focus our prevention efforts on. We want to, we, but we do want to make sure that parents and adults are also educating their, the young people in their lives that this is not um, a substance that it, that doesn't come with harm. So there's this belief that it's less harmful than alcohol or it's less harmful than this and less harmful. I'd rather them get high than this. And my attitude is that there, there are harms that are attached to it. So let's be honest with that too. So if we're, we're, we're going to be honest around that, that yes, you're not going to immediately die and explode if you smoke marijuana. Um, but at the same time, we need to be honest that there are significant health effects to the brain, the ability to function, our ability to be employable. There's a lot of different issues that are associated with it. So let's be honest about that too, that it is not a benign product um, and that it is not just because you used it as a youth and you didn't have any problems doesn't mean that the young person in your life will, will use and not have any problems. Um, and we're dealing with a different product with different levels of THC. And we're also dealing with a different societal op 
you know, world where people are smoking everywhere, where at least when you were probably getting high, you at least did it in private and not in the middle of the street, not sitting in your car, not, you know, and, and then that your ability and access was probably a little bit more limited and it's not as much of a challenge. And I just feel like, um, we have to be honest about both sides of the coin. And as you're talking, it's bringing up things in my head where we have to respect the rights of people that the law favors mm-hmm. um, while making sure that we're protecting those that need protection. And we're such an all or nothing country. I think it's hard for us to accept that and, and manage that in our minds that we have to look at it from both perspectives, uh, like that 30 year old versus an adolescent. Like when you mentioned the opioid uh, epidemic, when the Sacklers went down, people celebrated that as like it was the end of the opioid. We solved the opioid crisis because the Sacklers are getting sued. That's like saying we solved racism because we passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. uh, so it it just, there's a lot of levels and a lot of different things to look at. And we have to kind of look at things, uh, break it down to what the, the uh, parts of the issues are uh, so that we make sure we're doing what's in everybody's best interest. Um, as we finish up, anything you'd like to add? Um, I I think the main thing I want to add is that we as preventionists have to be flexible and that we have and we already have so much evidence and research around what helps um limit access to underage alcohol and nicotine and that we need to adapt those messages and that we need to really work with our decision makers to remember that just as much as they have the responsibility to bring in revenue into our states, we also have to ensure that we protect the young people in our community as well. We have the same amount as response, the same amount of responsibility um, that not the young person that you're talking about using today is the person that you're going to be hiring tomorrow and is your viable you know, um, employee that you want to bring in money in the future. Um, so we have to be thoughtful around that as well. And I just, um, I encourage the adults to stop saying that somehow that marijuana is less dangerous um, because we don't necessarily know that to be true. Mm-hmm. And that I think people want to justify their own use. So they want to be able to say that, Um but I and that I want us to be kind of really thoughtful about our responsibility to the next generation and keeping them safe and the next generation to hopefully reduce the amount of folks who experience substance use disorders. And I'd like to see a, another change. I'd like to see folks in the prevention space get paid a living wage. Oh, here, here. Here, here. So I, I would think, say in the behavioral health field overall, yeah, not just preventionists, I think that we need to have parity for our treatment providers, our recovery specials, and our prevention providers. And I think that we as a as a field need to support each other. It's not like if treatment gets money, that somehow that takes it away from prevention. If prevention gets money, it takes it away from treatment. But we're all on the same team here. Yeah, we're not we're not it's designed to be siloed, but we're not yeah. in silos. We're all on, we all work the same farm. Yes. So, yeah. well, that's going to do it for this episode. Shannon, I want to thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Um, it, 
maybe we'll have you back uh, when the next issue arises that <laughs> that we need Absolutely. to talk about. I don't want to forget preventionists when I do this podcast because there's so Thank much you. good information out there. Thank um, you. So thanks again for joining us. Thank um, you for having me. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. Um, that's going to do it for this episode. And certainly we appreciate you listening. Please keep listening and tell all your colleagues as we continue to bring forward issues that are discussed far less often than I think they should be. Until next time, everybody, we'll see you then.